Welcome to the New Nurse Podcast. I'm Nurse Meg. And I'm Nurse M. So all this month, we decided that we were going to tackle a very challenging topic of trauma. Um, and I say that because I think typically when we talk about trauma um, within a healthcare profession, we're just talking literally about the profession of being a trauma nurse, working in an emergency room department. Obviously, there's a lot of ways that we deal actively with the physical aspects of trauma on an everyday basis. Some of us, obviously, more than others. So Nurse Em and I decided that in order for us to really walk into this conversation in the best way possible and to bring it to you guys, we wanted to bring another voice alongside us. Somebody who is trained and tried and true in this arena. So we'd like to introduce you guys to a good friend, Megan Good. A good friend, Megan Good. That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> we need like a button that has like a cheering. We talked about getting that. Or like, but um, Megan is a counselor. Um, she started her own equine assistive therapy. So you know that Em and I already love her immensely because obviously we're huge animal lovers ourselves. So Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited. Do you want to tell everybody, because I'm sure like I'm going to butcher your credentials um, because I know nurse credentialing and not so much like counselor, therapist, psychiatrist, yeah, we're like, psychiatrist, psychiatrist, psychologist. <laughs> Somebody can prescribe meds. SOS. Phone a friend. <laughs> so I cannot prescribe medicines, but I'm a licensed professional counselor and a master's level therapist. Um, and I'm certified in trauma-informed equine-assisted psychotherapy. Which sounds super impressive, Megan. I mean, it just really does. I think there's probably a lot of letters behind your name, right? A few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of times when you are dealing with trauma, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's typically within like a military setting, like for vets, people that are struggling with PTSD. Well, so that's the really commonly thought of setting. Um, but actually more of what I see in my practice is more in the um, abuse, domestic violence, um, sexual abuse, neglect. Trauma was maybe not necessarily life threatening, could have been, but doesn't have to be. So I often look at it as there's big T trauma and little T trauma, but and I see a variety. OK, this is good. This is really good. So talk to us right off the bat of big T trauma. I'm assuming it's going to be a lot more of the military wars and, you know, people who are obviously coming into emergency rooms that have had their leg severed off or whatever. Um, but I think sometimes when we use the word trauma or choose to use the word trauma, I'm not sure that people always identify that that's a correct definition of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, I see a lot of people who cringe a little bit when I use that word because it might not feel like it fits right away. And that's why I love that big T, little T definition. So I look at big T, meaning it's the, the actual diagnosable PTSD trauma um, where it was a life threatening event or witnessing a life threatening event. Mm -hmm. um, little T trauma can be anything from um, neglect as a child, which could have been, again, life threatening. So that would put it more into the big T. But it could have just been my parents were always so busy with work. And I didn't get the emotional needs met that I had as a, a kid. Right. Um, it can be 
um, I lost a loved one and that was really hard on me and it feels like it changed everything. Mm-hmm. It can be, uh, my parents divorced and I didn't know how to, um, do relationships anymore because my parents were my world and I don't know who I can, you know what I mean? Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yes. Um, so how do you typically kind of smooth that transition for people into being willing to adopt the verbiage around that that says this was trauma, this was traumatic, um, and this left an impact that really now needs to be dealt with? So I'm a huge science nerd, okay? And that feels like that could have an easy answer, but I don't have an easy answer for you. So is it okay if I go into the sciencey part of it? Absolutely. Or... You're talking to healthcare professionals. We love, love it. Perfect. That's true. So, um, and I'm no neuroscientist by any means, but I love learning about how the brain is impacted by trauma um, because it incorporates trauma the way our body, um, the way our body copes with it, no matter whether it was big T or little T. Um, So our brain essentially has three main parts. And again, neuroscientists would add a million more, right? Their brains are very complex, but um, I think of it as our survival brain, our emotional and relational brain and our thinking brain. And when any kind of stressor happens, um, and I use the word stressor because it doesn't have to necessarily be a traumatic event, but it can be anything that is difficult to cope with or is beyond our ability to cope. Right. Um, and when that happens, if we don't have a lot of really healthy connections throughout our brain, which are developed over years and years of healthy attachments, of healthy um, dealing with difficult situations and learning how to cope with different things. If we don't have all those connections built into our brain, when a big stressor happens, our thinking brain first goes offline and then our emotional and relational brain starts to go offline. And what we're left with is survival brain, which is really where we find those flight, fight, please, or freeze responses. Mm-hmm. And so that is really our survival responses. Our body and our brain are just trying to adapt and survive a stressful situation. Um, and so when you look at it that way, it doesn't necessarily matter whether it was a life-threatening event or my parents divorced and I just felt very alone and all the stressors of how do I, how do I deal with that? Um, because my brain responds the same way, either way. I go into that fight, flight, these or freeze. And I'm guessing that a lot of times, I mean, with what you're working with could also be, I mean, if it's a child, mm-hmm. it's hard enough to try to navigate some of this stuff as an adult, let alone if you would be a child walking through some of this trauma. Definitely. Well, a lot of times we don't see kids going through trauma if they're good kids, mm-hmm. right? They're compliant and quiet and they're still getting okay grades. We can miss a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? Grow up. I don't know how to do relationships because I don't really like myself or I don't feel like I can trust people, but I've never really been able to voice that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when we start to look back and go, well, when did that start for you? That We can sometimes identify a traumatic event. And what you're saying Mm -hmm. with the three brains, too, seems to really correlate with, you know, if you made a linear image of what you just spoke about with like compassion fatigue, burnout, like I feel like they would all have like matching markers um, that would correlate with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to, you know, knowing trauma is its own entity, but that you can probably see those along the lines of working your way through stuff. I'm sure. I'm sure you do see that. 
Well, a lot of times with compassion fatigue, uh, it's sort of along the lines of complex trauma, right? So it's this repeated exhausting stressors again and again and again that are just draining our resources and our abilities to cope, mm-hmm. right? right? And what you see is people end up turning off thinking brain and emotional brain, and it doesn't have to be a full-on shutdown, right? That would be the very extreme end of things. But we're not using those parts of our brain as much because we're just exhausted, and what's left is our survival brain. And we kind of go into those flight, fight, freeze, or please techniques, which look different for everybody, and they're kind of all on a spectrum too, right? So flight doesn't actually have to be I'm leaving the state. (laughs) It can be I just start to avoid situations or I avoid friends and family and I start to isolate. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the two end ones you talked about, I don't think those are as commonly known. The freeze and then you said please, right? Yes. Could you talk about those a little bit? Because I'm super interested. Absolutely. Yeah. So um I would say there's typically an order, but not always for people. Um so if you think about it as a stressor occurs, right? Something happens. My first go to is usually flight. I'll try to get away from the situation. If that doesn't work, I will fight, which, again, doesn't have to be throwing punches or something extreme. Um, but it might just be verbal or it might be I get a little aggressive or a little sarcastic. Right. If that doesn't work to alleviate the stressor, um, I'll usually go into pleasing mode, uh, which is often where we see people pleasing, um, a lot of compliance behaviors. You know, so there's kids that don't speak up and say anything, but they're the good kid. They might be just be in please mode. Um, and then freeze is more your shutdown. And that's where we on the extreme end can see things like dissociation um, or it can be anything from I just go to Netflix. Right. And I just watch YouTube videos and I, I check out from life. And that's my go to. Mm-hmm. So it could be super extreme, like I can't move and I'm frozen and I'm staring at a wall, but it can be out of versions that are actually pretty common, right? Or scrolling through Insta Reel. <laughs> yeah. so. so let's, if we applied some of this towards the nursing profession, so obviously we're, as nurses, we're already in a state of heightened emotions. Um, there's constant stressors. There's a lot of personal responsibility that we take on ourselves. It's my patient, right? And so often the outcome of my patient is largely indicative, whether or not there's actual like accuracy to it, but it's indicative to my level of care. Did I take care of that patient appropriately? If they died, um, you know, that, that was on me or that maybe I should have seen something coming. Okay. I'm pretty sure every nurse has felt their heart jump into their throat because something has happened that literally like, Oh my God, did I get the wrong med? Did I get the wrong dose? Like what, what did I miss? What, what did I miss? How many times have a nurse said that? Mm-hmm. So, Megan, maybe, I mean, I would love for you to speak to our community because the reason that the podcast started was because we wanted to create a healthier culture within the nursing profession. We wanted to sort of push back on some of these toxic beliefs, behaviors. We wanted to start having a better level of self-awareness that we actually are owning our own actions, our own attitudes, right? Like we can largely shape how we're entering into situations because there will be things that are unique in a nursing profession much like again military that you can't necessarily remove the stressors people are going to die there are going to be 
traumatic life endings for people, traumatic parts of stories, family members that are freaking out on you. Can you unpack a little bit for a nurse as to how they could maybe like navigate some of those really challenging parts of the profession? And now, by the way, it's compounded with a global health pandemic. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't imagine doing what you guys do on a daily basis um, because it is that constant pressure and that constant stressors coming from every direction. Um, so when I think of how do I navigate this, I think of, well, what is my baseline for even being able to cope? Um, and that is so important, but it's so easy to overlook because sometimes we really simplify it and throw things out there like, oh, you just need more self-care. But what does self-care even look like? Because it's not always like you do self-care Saturday. We're not saying that that's the end all be all fix all though. Yes, exactly. Well, and self-care to me, looking at the brain and the neuro perspective means so much more. So each of those parts of the brain, the thinking, emotional, relational and the survival brain have different needs that if we can incorporate those needs into our self-care on a regular basis, we have a better baseline for dealing with stress. And so what that can look like. So there's such a thing as bottom up versus top down regulation. Um, and top down regulation is often, you know, your talk therapy. We want to just talk about things and problem solve. But bottom up recognizes that until my for every nurse out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. You guys probably have heard of this. Right. But until my survival brain is regulated, I can't talk about something. I can't think through and problem solve a situation. Right. And so I have to regulate my my body before I can start to think about something and, and resolve it. Um, so, you know, is everybody eating and being hydrated throughout their shifts? You guys have long, crazy shifts, you know, but do you have chances to just make sure your basic physical needs are met? You're doing plenty of moving, but how about intentional movement um, on your off days? Right. And what does that look like? That just things that feel good. It doesn't have to be sweating it out at the at the gym. Um, but do you move your body in ways that feel good? Um, are you sleeping enough? You know, and so does your body have that baseline of regulation? Every for, nurse is going to shake their head. No. Am I sleeping enough? Right. right? Too much, depending on I feel like what stage you're in. Um, the disassociation. You might actually be sleeping to yeah. to get away from all the stressors. Yeah. That's a good point. That is a good point. Yeah. Well, so and the, and that, this is the. This is the top down. This is the bottom up. So think survival brain is the bottom of your brain. That is the most basic. Um, it's your brain stem, literally. Um, and, and all the most basic decisions that your brain has to make. Oh, um, so is this like a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs? A little bit. Yes. Because nurses know that. Okay. They know Maslow's. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, so there's basic needs, right? And, and safety. Is such a huge one, right? So does my body feel safe? Not just am I actually safe and do I know that I'm safe? But if my body doesn't, if I'm hungry, right? Hang, everybody knows about hanger, right? And how we do when we're hangry. Um, but, you know, that is a baseline that is not being met. And so I'm dysregulated, right? But it's the same with any of our most basic needs. If I don't have that baseline met, I'm already on, on some level dysregulated. And so when a stressor occurs, I'm just a little bit less able to cope with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So, you know, so really those physical needs are what has to be met for survival brain to even just start to regulate. Um, and then it's the emotional and relational needs. And that's where, you know, am I talking to people? Do I have a support system in place? Um, like what you guys do is awesome because you're validating and normalizing these things for all these nurses that are so difficult. Um, and hopefully they have people they can talk with. But sometimes that's hard. And sometimes that, that's something that people don't have. Um, can I identify my emotions? You know, when when I lose a patient, can I grieve and walk through that grief and yet have healthy enough boundaries to still be able to like compartmentalize that. Right. And go serve my other patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then what do I do when I get home? Do I take care of my emotional needs? And, you know, am I journaling or some in some way getting things out? Do I talk to a therapist? Do I talk to a friend? Um, getting those emotions out and coping with those. Right. And then the top level is the thinking brain. And that's where we can start. Once we have the physical support that we need and the emotional and relational support that we need, then we can start to problem solve and think through a situation. And what do I want to do uh, with intentional choice? So Interesting. So even to be able to get to the point, realistically thinking, to be able to get to the point of deciding and critically thinking through what do I need for my self-care, you already have to really have your emotional and physical needs being met. I mean, yeah. To properly be able to assess what is going to help me right now. Yes. Yep. Information is so important for people to get out because so many people aren't getting those baseline things, which then just makes it harder and then less motivating to even figure out the higher level things that I need and meet those needs. That's what I was just thinking. Like within the profession, we completely flip it. I mean, we start with critical thinking that we then apply think typically like that's where we go first as nurses because that's where you go to problem solve whatever is happening with your patient my blood pressure is dropping do you know what I mean like right and like like with coming into their story you're coming into their story late Mm. you're like okay here's this acute issue I gotta deal with this and quickly think same with you can probably correlate that with us Mm -hmm. to like make an analogy because you know I love my analogies right I mean then to say I'm jumping into my hurt or trauma late right now I kind of need to take a step back and then make my way back yeah does that make sense yeah and make sure that you've got these pieces in place that Megan is is suggesting with wait top bottom up bottom up yeah I remember it like when I'm in survival mode bottoms up is like you might need a drink like that so (laughs) Which, I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying it's an analogy. I love it. In moderation. Yeah. In moderation. Yeah. Um, well, but when we do that, what are we trying to meet? A physical need, right? True. Megan, this is good. You- Some regulation for our bodies. And what does it do is it calms us down and slows us down. Right. So there might be other ways we can do that. That would be regulating and sometimes more healthy, right? Moderation is okay, but what sometimes. Some examples? What's that? What are some examples of other things? Going on a walk. So a lot of times that, that bottom part of the brain, the brainstem survival brain needs rhythmic, repetitive sensory input. Um, and so what that can look like is any kind of physical movement, um, Watching the clouds go by, right? You just get the slow breeze and these like beautiful shapes and you're just taking that time to breathe. 
um, breathing exercises, right? Because you're intentionally moving your belly in and out or your chest up and down and taking in oxygen and letting it out. Um, anything that's rhythmic and repetitive is going to be regulating. And I heard someone say on a podcast recently, I can't remember who it was, but they said like, don't throw me the cheesy stuff. Like I don't want the cheesy stuff. And I think nurses can say that a lot and we can kind of put this armor on, but evidence and science are not cheesy. Like there's research to support these things. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, that's pretty valid. You know, like Mm -hmm. it does sound frou-frou, but if you pull up research on such things, you're going to find statistical significance. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's overlooked because sometimes they're so overdone or over discussed. Right. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Three deep breaths. Okay. Right. But uh, can you actually um, count your breathing? Right. And intentionally take in for four seconds and then out for four seconds. Right. And start to gain control. And that can help us gain control in other areas, too. Right. And like you're saying, these things are scientifically proven, but sometimes we're so quick to turn it off because we just hear it all the time. Right. So I I hate to push the envelope a little bit, but I kind of want to. What happens if somebody never goes into this bottom up space? Like what if they always so often what happens, say you're in a code situation, M and I both she currently is an ICU nurse. I've been an ICU nurse. I've I've been part of our code team. Are you part of your code team? Our our unit charge nurse is part of our hospital code team. Oh, okay. Um different hospitals, different systems. But a lot of times whenever you go into say a code situation, you immediately compartmentalize, right? Because it does not matter what is happening right now. I'm gonna take care of this situation. So my emotions are off because I don't have time to think about the fact that I want to cry because you're my patient or the fact that the daughters cry. You know what I mean? Like we're just, I mean, truly going into that, that like go mode. But then I think what often happens is that even if there's a debriefing that happens afterwards, you were just saying that sometimes it's hard to even go into the thinking brain because some of these other needs are, have not been met, or maybe you're not in a safe space. If you're in a toxic, um, space at work that maybe you're not very well supported by your coworkers, um and or maybe it's just really fresh like I, I don't know I feel like to me sometimes it takes me a little bit to process and let down so if the debriefing is happening within like 24 hours I might not be ready for that what happens if we never go back and revisit those situations though that life just keeps chugging along what what happens that's a great question um so the example I often give people is that we have a capacity a lot like, you know, your coffee cup, right? You might have a 16 ounce cup in front of you and it can only hold 16 ounces. If there's any more, something's going to spill out. And we have a capacity too emotionally and everybody's a little bit different, right? Some people can hold a lot of things in, but eventually it will come out in some way. That's not always some giant explosion, right? But it can be an inward explosion too. It can be, I just hate life and I'm so exhausted all the time. It can be sickness and illness, right? Um, so all of that stuff never coming out in any way, it, it does get stuck in there and it does come out in some way. It just might not be the way that we choose. And so that's where doing these things intentionally before the, going into that traumatic situation, right? So I really, I, 
I'm backing up a little bit. This is all things that we do naturally without necessarily having intention. It's just that we might need it a little bit more intentionally, right? Um, when I go for a walk, that is regulating whether I'm intentionally doing it for that reason or not, right? right. You're on your feet all day. You're walking around. That is physically regulating to your brain, whether you're thinking about it that way or not. Right. Um, you are drinking water and hydrating. It's regulating your body, um, et cetera. But having that baseline because you're intentional about it helps you when you go into the situation to stay in thinking brain and to be able to compartmentalize it so that you can focus on what you're doing. Right. And then afterwards, it's more like it's more about emptying your cup so that you have more capacity for next time. Ah, yes. 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 <laughs> I love that. Um, you know what? So we are at our time mark. Um, I think that we will cut it here um, because Nooner's family, we want you guys to really um, hit the repeat button right now and listen to this all over again because uh, Nurse Em and I are going to be doing that as well well and walking ourselves right back through everything that Megan just said. Um, Megan's going to join us for the next session as well. So um, we're going to jump back on and finish up with you, May, so that we can really wrap this up well. Obviously, there's a ton to be said on the topic. So Nooner Spam, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks, Meg. Talk yep. to y'all soon. <laughs>